0: Welcome to the SaaS Product Power Breakfast, hosted by Dave Kellogg and Thomas Otter. This is recorded in front of a live studio audience on Clubhouse and played back later on podcast.
1: Well, Thomas, uh, off to you. I think we're about start time, if you're all set up.
0: I am, I am vaguely set up. David, are you, are you happy and comfortable and on, and can we hear you? Yes, I think so. Can you be okay? Uh, we can hear you very, very well, you're... Your dulcet Irish tones are are a great uh, contrast to my um, my severe South African accent. So excellent, perfect, excellent to Excellent to have you today. So so this is episode six of the SAS Product Power Breakfast with uh, Dave Kellogg, uh, Thomas Otter, and our special guest today is uh, is uh, David uh, is uh, um, uh, uh, David Clark. So so um, perhaps we'll start off, David. Um, I met you, oh, it was probably about 15 years ago um, when I was a gardener, and uh, you'd just been, um, uh, Cape Clear I think had just been acquired by uh, by Workday week, we, so we go back uh, some way, but maybe you give the audience a bit of your your history, where you've come from and, and, and what you've been up to and, and, and what you're doing today.
2: Sure, yeah, um, so nice to be here, thanks for the invite. And, um... Yeah, I've been hanging around the industry now for about 20 years and um, in a few different companies. So I, um, at a college, I worked in a company called Iona Technologies, which was one of the early Irish sort of software tech companies. Uh, we went public in, uh, on NASDAQ like in 1996, um, and at the time that was actually the second biggest software IPO after Netscape, um, which shows you how long ago it was. And it was kind of a fun company doing integration middleware stuff, um, really before. Web-based development was big and um, yeah, it was a good place to be, but really none of us knew what we were doing. It was everyone's kind of first job. So um, you know, the company grew rapidly for a while, a good while, and then uh, stopped growing equally rapidly, um, which was kind of less less fun. Um, but it was yeah, interesting. And then a few of us went and set up a, a, a company after that called Cape Clear, which was aimed at really doing integration for web-based systems. Um, which were becoming increasingly prevalent, obviously around the, you know, the turn of the millennium. So we ran that for about seven, eight years, nine years, I guess. And then eventually ended up getting acquired by Workday. And I spent 12 years at Workday through its growth phase, through its IPO and afterwards. Um, and yeah, I finished up there last summer, and um, sort of having done really two, if not three shifts, I guess. And now I'm um, focusing on um, mostly kind of startup stuff, a bit of investing, a bit of advising, a bit of venture capital, um, and I'm also doing some uh, work with the, with the Irish government uh, on some digital identity topics as they relate to um, government services, and, and that's all quite interesting right now with um, vaccinations and passports and certificates and so forth. So we're certainly going to see a lot more of that, I think. So yeah, that's that's kind of what I've been doing, what I've been up to. And like you say, I've I've come across you, Thomas, over the years in a variety of capacities as a an analyst, kind of a you know a critic and um, competitor. And, and and occasionally a colleague. So yeah, nice
0: to be here and that. Yeah, super super to have you. So I feel like you've sort of lurked in a parallel universe to 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 mine. Um, mine along the way. Your your universe had a lot more IPOs than mine, but uh, nevertheless, uh, there's there's uh, there's uh, some similarities. You know, for those of you that are on the phone and don't really know much about Workday and get the and get sort of the the, the, the scale of it. I, I think you know, David, when you joined Workday, how when you guys were acquired by Workday, that was that was, you know, what was that? That uh, uh, was two thousand eight. Two thousand eight. So how big was Work? You know, how big were work was Workday then? How many customers you did they, you know, did they have? How you know, give it, give the the listeners a sense yeah. of what Workday was in those days.
2: In two thousand eight, um, Workday was early. So I think at the time we joined, we had it was about 45, 40, 50 of us, I think. And Workday at the time had about one hundred and. 80 employees, so we were kind of about a quarter of the um, combined company at that point. And that workday had been up and running for about sort of a year and a half, with beginnings of customers and production. So they had about like 30-ish, I want to say 30-ish customers, mostly small, but a couple of big ones even then. Uh, So we were just really entering the phase of um, trying to storm the ramparts of the uh, SAP and Oracle incumbents. to the evident disbelief of uh, of Larry Ellison and al. at the time, so yeah, it was quite small but um, growing quickly. And I guess you know the landscape at that point was uh, Salesforce had gone public in two thousand five, so they had sort of legitimised the idea that you could actually run critical business systems on the on the web and you could outsource important business data and functions to the cloud, because you know prior to that and certainly prior to Salesforce's uh, success and IPO, it wasn't clear at all. That, Custom, corporate customers were able to rapid to adopt uh, the cloud as a you know way to to run core business systems.
0: Yeah, you know, we forget that now, but at the time, you know, SaaS was still novel. You know, um, it wasn't. You know, the, the academics talk about a talk about a dominant you know dominant design uh, in in tech, but but it wasn't then. It wasn't the dominant design. You know, uh, uh, on premise was still you know significantly outselling um, you know outselling cloud and and you know the whole idea of on premise at the time was it was highly customizable highly adaptable and you know you guys were coming to market with this idea of you know we we're building a system and it's going to work out of the box it's going to be um, it's going to be really straightforward it's going to be really really simple yet um, you took on some some massive early customers like like um, like HP you know I remember you know when you guys closed the the HP deal um I uh, was I was a, a guy at the time and I was uh, really amazed that you that you landed that deal and I was even more amazed you know uh, relatively soon after you went live with 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 uh, with HP it's it's often easy to close software deals with companies like HP it's a lot harder to go to go go live with them and HP at that time was you know well over hundred thousand employee well over hundred thousand employee companies so that was that was mega impressive the the thing that interests me is is a question is the, the how do you manage that as a product team when you have your small little company and you have this 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 massive uh, uh, customer you know that can just if you're not careful can just just override and, 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 and you know dominate your strategy and your roadmap how do you manage that that, 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 that big that big customer
2: yeah it's yeah, a good question and the funny thing about HP which is I'll get back to your question in a second but um, I was just thinking about it recently in a different context and um, how When you sign big customers like that, especially when you're a smaller company, your your product can end up getting used in ways you didn't really expect, um, uh, like especially around scale. So I remember, in particular, around the time HP, um, shortly after they went live, in fact, they demerged, as as you know. So they split out into it was two, if not it was three businesses. Anyway, they, they, split, they split themselves up, and um, we had been working for a while on a feature to enable um, sort of people to be Essentially forgotten. The system part it was partly related to GDPR uh, support supporting capability, so um, we had to have a way to essentially delete or forget or remove people. And the intention was that that would be staged out gradually because it was a sensitive feature, you know, quite deep down in the data model, it affected a lot of stuff. So we intended to stage it out gradually. You know, release to a few people who would sort of delete five people for a couple of weeks and then scale up to hundred or whatever. I remember, I think the first week that when feature went to production. Um, I got a call on like the Friday evening and it was like HP's um, sort of uh, customer success manager saying they would found this feature and they intended to use it the next week uh, to effect their demergers. They were gonna copy their tenant twice and in one copy delete 100,000 people and in the other copy delete the other 100,000 people. Um, so I remember going to the product team saying, is this gonna work? <laughs> and then it was sort of slightly pale faces, but it did work. Um, but it was an example of how, you know, as a startup growing quickly, especially dealing with big, big customers, uh, you can find yourself facing some pretty um, surprising uh, uses of your product, especially as it relates to scale. And I guess that's the that was kind of the first takeaway. And then, in fairness, it was a credit to David and Neil who had worked workday that they they kind of went after big companies early on the basis that partly, well, that's where the money is, right? Um so, mm-hmm. to be successful with big companies, you've you, the economics of your business are that much simpler. But I think you know, the mistake that I have seen smaller companies make is they go after big companies for that reason, but then they're not thoughtful about how they're doing it uh, mm-hmm. in a few different ways. Like the first obvious one is that your eyes are breaking your stomach and you, you're going after businesses that even if you close them, you're actually not going to be able to support technically. So the thing just isn't going to work because they have too many products or too many people or too many transactions and you just haven't actually you know, built yourself to support that scale. So that, that's that's an easy and obvious way to screw up. I think. You know, more subtle, but a more maybe um, sort of damaging um, possibility is that your roadmap is hugely um, diluted or distracted by mm-hmm. the big customer because you know they have legitimate expectations that you're going to do everything it takes to make them successful. But if that ends up putting you way off of your strategy line, then um, you know it, it can actually be problematic. So you need to be very convinced that you know making the company successful, the big company, is going to be result in. You know, product activity that's actually on your strategy line, not way off of it, and you know, it goes even beyond the product because you know, dealing with very large companies, especially as a small company, involves many people, and often the whole management team, you know, lots of the actual you know, sort of uh, co-face workers, so it's hugely distracting of effort at that level, and, um, and I think an unexpected thing, or certainly I've seen companies surprised by it, is that big companies escalate quickly when they're dealing with small companies. So, they sort of feel like they have this god-given right to uh to call the ceo at a moment's notice and to just escalate even relatively minor issues very quickly so if you haven't got a, a process to deal with that and you know you're not sufficiently confident to say no to some things you can end up quite separate from the roadmap and the, the effort distractions you can you can end up just just being sort of in this permanent state of escalation and it can be quite quite
0: disorientating i think yeah i've i've, I've lived that I've lived that as well. It's it's almost worse when you're, a, when you're a small division of a big software company. That's which I was in at SuccessFactors, within being a small division of of, of SAP. Then there's this, this double escalation problem where they, they escalate within SuccessFactors, and then the next step is they escalate within SAP. So um, yes, when Nestle when Nestle wants something, you kind right. of uh, it, it's quite hard to say it's quite hard to say no and to have that discipline to say, this isn't really what we're trying to build. Yeah. You know? right. It goes back to the idea of you you kind of – I think if you're dealing with big customers, you have to be pretty convinced of where you want to be Um, uh, because if you don't have an idea of where you want to be and you've got this open idea, oh, well, let's just figure this out as you go along, you will end up building, you know, every pet project that this big company has never been able to have anybody else build for them, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And that gets you down this sort of cul-de-sac and gets you trapped, if you like, almost like a Stockholm syndrome for this one big customer. So you think you're a product company. But actually what you're doing is you're actually doing a a project the worst vendor to be is a project vendor on a SaaS license model that's a really bad place to a bad um a bad place to be in um, yeah i
2: think um, that's right but i think the, the point about saying no is, is is worth making because again sometimes the power dynamic well it is asymmetric in these kinds of relationships but i think sometimes the, the smaller company thinks they can't ever say no and in fact you know, knowing where to say no and being able to say no is quite important, I think, in those relationships. And it can be surprising that so the bigger companies can be quite pragmatic about situations. And there's often, I certainly saw, so, there's a reluctance to convey bad news, like a roadmap slippage, a product issue, like an outage, a data problem, whatever it is. You know, there's kind of a, a desire to do almost anything to avoid having to bring bad news to the to the big company. But in fact, um, you know, we learned pretty quickly that you know like radical transparency is really best in that regard rather than you know hopeful and you know hopeful planning so and and i think you end up being more respected by them as a a, you know peer if you're if you're blunt about stuff and if you you say no to things that aren't going to work or don't make sense
0: Um, and i think that's that's kind of a you know an important skill in in, for smaller companies in dealing with 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 bigger companies yeah i think related to that you need to build Relationships with the people in the big companies, you kind of think, okay, oh, I'm dealing with, with, um, you know, I'm dealing with Siemens or I'm dealing with Bank of America or I'm dealing with 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 uh, uh, Walmart or whatever, and oh, there's this big unseen beast of a thing, but actually, most of the time, you're 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 dealing with individuals in those companies, and um, the way I always saw it is that is that they were betting their careers on on the product that I was working with, so um, if my product was successful, their career was going to be. You know their career in that company was going to be was going to be successful. So you build up this relationship of trust. I think with with those key with those key people in the you know in the company. And um, it, if you're open with those people, it, it helps you it helps help you so much. Dave, do you want do you want do you want to hop in?
1: Sure, Thomas. I I just wanted to uh, say we had a hand raiser, so I pulled Bowman up on the stage. I don't know if you're ready to take questions, but we have a.
0: We are always we ready to questions take ahead. questions. We are flexible.
3: Thanks, everybody. Good morning. Kind of along those same lines, I'd love to learn your perspective on the role of large system integrators and the role that they play with enterprise software companies. I think Workday was, in my mind, one of the last companies that was able to do what um, SAP and Oracle did with Accenture and Deloitte by the virtue of having those large practices and those large benches of individuals. Is that dynamic shifting, Um, especially as it relates to uh, large clients or large deals that might get signed. would love your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's a great question. I think, um, so yeah, when, when you start to deal with the biggest companies, they're
2: accustomed to I think, dealing in a certain way with enterprise vendors. And I think to some extent, at least for the first generation of enterprise cloud systems that they deployed, they followed a lot of the same playbooks. So it was, stuff was running in the cloud, but in many cases, the projects looked a little similar. The project governance was similar. The project plans were similar and the, the project participants being, as you say, the bigger size, but similar. Um, and, you know, at Workday, we kind of, we, we, there's only so many things you can disrupt at the same time. Um, and we were already using up quite a lot of um, goodwill by, you know, getting people to move from from trusted if hated vendors into the cloud. So we didn't want to at the same time really take on, you know, a radical change to the project delivery and governance model. So, as you said, you know, companies like Salesforce, Workday, we're probably the last, maybe generation of companies to, to to do that, to engage with the big SIs in in the same way that maybe the previous generation of vendors had. Um, I think part of it was pragmatic. Certainly, I know for Workday because um, you know as you scale quickly and you're delivering your services to like tens and then hundreds of giant companies, you just don't have the bandwidth on staff in the company to deliver like that number of projects at that scale. So you know it had to be you know, outsourced uh, in some way to, um, to consultants and the consultants who were trusted by the um, by the, the customer community were the big five or the big six or those different members of them over the years. So that was kind of how we operated. And, you know, for for Workday, certainly, and I think similarly for, for Salesforce and also for people like ServiceNow, and um, they didn't want to view services as really a, a major revenue or profit center. And um, so, you know, sort of, I know at Workday we just tried to have the services um, organization wash its face, just break even Um, and we also didn't want it to become a big proportion of the business and firstly because it's just a bit harder to manage and secondly it's just not as scalable in economic and and financial terms as the the core product business is. So that kind of led you to a certain dynamic where you know services was stable at sort of 15 to 20 percent of revenue, it was breaking even but wasn't profitable. You know where there was margin there we would often you know purposely reinvested into customers you know uh, to make them successful to make them happy because that was a big part of the flywheel of the business and um, we did look to embed even on projects for, that were being led and executed by an si for a big customer we would typically um have like you know workday people on staff as part of that project as, as part of ensuring quality and success and consistency so there was kind of a dovetailing effect there i think um that's certainly true. Everything I just said for bigger customers, like call it, you know, 20,000 employees and up, something like that. But I think as you start to move down to the mid market, obviously some of those dynamics change, and um, you know, customers are less likely and willing, uh, less likely to be willing to want to engage with the bigger size on those kinds of projects. They're going to want to do more themselves or have more done for them. So, you know, I think strategically, again, I know for Workday and for similar uh, companies as they move toward the mid market, the way you need to think about implementations and projects and you know expertise available for those things needs to change and the product needs to be more quickly implementable, maybe less customizable, more prepackaged in ways that enable um, companies to be more self-sufficient or at least to, to get a lot done without having to engage with it with a big SI. So I don't know if that makes sense, at the Moment, or if that answers you know, what you were thinking.
3: That's tremendous, yeah. Yeah. I mean it's um, you know I've been often told it's a necessary evil. But, you know, that's probably because most of the people that say that are ex-Oracle or SAP, Um, GSIs that are, that is. Mm -hmm. So your answer, yeah,
2: it's a very good answer. And so I'll think about it a lot more today. Yeah, thanks. And I think the the final point maybe to make about that is that, um, you know, still in big companies and the the, the SIs are big influencers, like they they influence strategy, they certainly influence product decisions. And so I think, you know, they're, they're a part of that enterprise ecosystem in the Fortune, you know, Fortune 500, certainly the Fortune 2000 even, and they're, yeah. they're, they're big influencers. Yeah,
0: I think that one of the points there is that when you think about the transformation process, if, you, if you're a vendor or a software vendor, then you tend to think about business transformation in the context of your software. Um, but actually, there's often a whole lot of other stuff that's going on, and your software is just part of the picture. You know, so you know, a company may be preparing for an IPO, a company maybe maybe uh, 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 expanding globally, maybe doing acquisitions, uh, uh, maybe completely restructuring from from being a federal organization to a central organization, the other way around, and and your technology is essentially uh, you know part of a bigger picture, and that is often driven by the by the by the SIs. So the, the SIs often provide the, the the impetus for the project in the first place. Um, what I often find is that the that the that's that's I used to find that the, the larger SIs were excellent in the sales cycle, and the smaller SIs were 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 the ones who would actually get the customer live. So uh, it was always important to have the relationships and manage the relationship between the large SIs and the you know and the and the small SIs because it was often the small SIs who knew the technical details of the product uh, better than the large SIs than the large. Uh, uh, SIs but but Dave, you, you you have a quote on your blog, I think, where you talk about the the the, the main goal of 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 services in a uh, in a SaaS company is to drive up NPS. I think I, maybe I'm misquoting you, but I that, that sticks to mind of what's something I read on your blog, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I've always felt that software companies get confused about the role of services. Like sometimes they'll hire a practice lead straight from an SI who thinks the job is to maximize the size of the services business or to maximize the margin from the services business. And I think people, especially with company valuations at 20 times ARR, I think everyone now, it's increasingly obvious that the purpose of services is to maximize ARR. And that's accomplished through some combination of doing stuff yourself when the customer wants you to. And enabling SIs to do the rest.
0: Yeah, I think the the the, the thing that Workday did well also on the you know that they, they they were pretty disciplined. I think compared to the other vendors at the certification and the and the validation of their SIs. So they didn't they didn't let anyone work on a Workday project. They were actually much stricter um, than I think any of the other vendors were. I'm sounding like a Workday appraiser here, but um, uh, I do this grudgingly. Uh, but they did that really really well um, in terms of of, of creating a, a, a guardrail of, of around the, the SI quality at times I think they overdid that because it created a, a, a shortage of, of, of skills in the market but it did uh, they, they were much I think better than the other the other um, uh, enterprise vendors at the at assuring some kind of quality level of, 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 of product competence in the yeah, in the in the um, in the SI. That makes
2: sense, but yeah, I do think. But you know, over over time, um, I think Moan was hinting at this. I think again, um, you know, increasingly people want projects to be shorter. They want products to be easier to use, and more self-explanatory. They want things like integrations to be simpler. So I think um, yeah, I think increasingly, um, a lot more of the smaller companies I now see who are operating in the HR broadly defined space you know, look a lot different than where they did at a similar stage, and they're much more focused on. Ease of implementation, you know, implementation and configuration built into the product more, and um, like maybe less skilled configurators. So I think again, yeah, yeah, I think in the in the medium term, it's I, I don't see quite the same business model for the uh, for the global SIs as,
3: as they've operated um, you know up to now. Yeah, and just one, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Mom. I just want a final comment. What I've uh, to close out the alliances and ecosystem thoughts, I found more value in. In having a better relationship with uh, companies like AWS or or the hyperscalers, because more often than not, uh, any uh, client or prospect, before they go out to seek these business applications, they think about do we even have the infrastructure to run them? Um, Engaging with AWS, I've found, um, you know, uh, enabling them with the field ready sales kits or or whatever helps them understand the value that our business applications bring. um, And then the line of communication, having that, uh, it's just so much better um, for us from a, from a prospecting perspective or even a brand recognition perspective.
0: Yeah. That's actually a super segue into the next sort of question that I had on my, on, on my list is that you know, if you look at something like, look at a product like Workday, um, um, yeah, Workday you think about as, a, as an application company, right? They build HR, they build an HR application, but they acquired... Cape Clear, which was essentially, you know, an integration uh, um, platform, essentially a platform technology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a technology that provides capabilities to developers, rather than a, a, a technology that provides capabilities to 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 end users. I don't want to 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 uh, um, uh, describe probably not describe Cape Clear very well, but um, um, as you get as you start to get bigger as a as a as a software company. You you have a platform. You have some sort of platform organization that's building, building product for you know your engineers to use to build applications. And um, uh, you know one of the things I found challenging at success factors was always balancing um, the requirements of of getting a efficient platform uh, and driving standards, and then at the same time allowing um, uh, individual uh, product managers and engineers to have um, you know, have freedom to 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 innovate. Maybe you could talk a little bit. You know, given your CTO background, about the role of you know platform versus applications, and how do they? You know, what is a platform uh, for an applications company, and 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 how do you see that changing from say when Workday started to to if you're doing it today?
2: Yeah. Great question, big topic, and, and again, I, 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 I haven't been inside your work day in a year or so. I'm sure their thinking has, has, has moved on or changed significantly, so uh, I'll talk about it in general. Um, I guess, firstly, from I would distinguish between an integration platform and then an application platform. So, um, you know, for enterprise SaaS centers, you need some way in which your offering is going to fit into the ecosystem of other apps, increasingly cloud apps that companies have. So, you need a good integration story. Um, Again, for workday at the time we, we decided we needed to own that, which is why we, we acquired KClear. And um, I think that was the right decision then because you know, integration technology was still relatively nascent, especially as it related to the internet and to web based systems. I think that's changed now and I'm not sure today if you know company like an enterprise and cloud company needs to own, you know, to the same degree its own middleware. Um, but anyway, that there was a good reason for that at the time and I think it's 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 still valid. I think on the broader platform question it's it's kind of an interesting one and um, something I certainly grappled with over my tenure at Workday, and I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an evergreen topic, is, you know, are we, you know, are we building an end-user-facing app or are we building a platform upon which we've built an end-user-facing app, but which could also be used by other people to build an end-user-facing user app, and, and, you know, it's, it's difficult to do both of those things at the same time is the honest answer, because, um, you know, it tends to be the DNA of a company. To be an applications company or a platform company, and it's 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 rare to see both uh, in one company, and it's rare to see both done well in one company. So I think that's something people struggle with. Um, I think my favorite—it's hard to define a platform, but the favorite, my favorite way of thinking about it, and I think the best definition I've seen is um, Bill Gates has been quoted. You've probably heard about the city of the Bill Gates line, where. Um, you know, companies like tech companies, and I've been guilty of this myself, often talk about platforms in terms of APIs and interfaces and, and programming and extensions and so on. And um, you know, Bill Gates once said, apparently he was in advising Facebook, and they were proudly showing him their new platform around the time they were launching their first sets of APIs and so on. Of course, that didn't work out well for other reasons. <laughs> but um, it was a good idea at the time. And then um, they were proudly telling, telling Bill Gates, hey, this is a platform. And he was going, like, that's a crock of... That's rubbish, you know. Um, a platform. You have a platform when the value that's captured by the ecosystem is greater than that captured by the owner of the platform. So, you know, for him then, or by that measure, Windows was the ultimate platform. So, Microsoft made a ton of money out of Windows, but the ecosystem broadly defined, by ISDS all around Windows, like made much more in aggregate than Microsoft did. And um, so, I think, to me, that's a good definition of a platform because it implies you're kind of An important part of yes, but only a part of this broader economy that's arisen around what you're doing. So, you know, AWS is a platform. Uh, Windows was a platform. Um, Sort of, you know, Microsoft Azure is a platform. Um, But as you look at enterprise apps, it's increasingly, or it's difficult for me to look at any of them and say, yeah, that's a platform. Um, Which you know, I think is a missed opportunity because the kinds of Primitives and software infrastructure that you need to build like highly scalable um, enterprise applications is hard to build. And it's a pity to see everybody building it multiple times instead of seeing it be reused. So I think, you know, companies like Salesforce, like ServiceNow, um, like SAP, SuccessFactors, like Workday have all this componentry that they could make available as a platform where people could then build powerful apps on top of it without needing to reinvent stuff all the time. But it just hasn't happened. Um, you know, it just really hasn't happened. And, you know, again, I, I was part of this whole dialogue over years, but, I, you know, the answer I keep coming back to is that it's either in the DNA of a company to enable an ecosystem in the way Bill Gates described it or not. And I think, um, you know, in many cases, application companies just don't have those instincts and don't have that DNA, and therefore it's it's hard for them to do it.
0: Yeah, I think it's, you know, if you look at Oracle, uh, it's kind of fascinating because it, 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 it has a little bit of both in, in Oracle in the sense that the... The database business is a platform business, right? Right. So, so if we go back to the '90s, um, uh, SAP was the in early 2000s, SAP was Oracle's biggest reseller. Right. So, SAP sold more Oracle databases than than the Oracle than, than Oracle sold, and the Oracle application sold. Yeah? So, it was a fascinating example of a company where you had both. You had this this application team that was fiercely competitive with, with SAP. Yet the database team, if they got a development request from SAP, they'd probably take it more seriously than if they got a development request from their, from their, own, from their own applications team. And I guess that's another definition of just, just a, just a definition of platform is who do you prioritize? You know, do you prioritize your own engineers or do you prioritize your engineers from, from, a, uh, from somebody building on your platform?
2: Yeah, that's right. And if you, talk to the, um, if you talk to the Amazon guys, and famously AWS got going essentially as a productization of internal platform infrastructure that they had built to be used by the website. Um, But when you talk to the AWS guys, they will say that, you know, at at some point, um, they had these whale customers. So, you know, soon enough after launching, they had Netflix was one of the early ones, and I think they had the US government as well. And then, so pretty quickly for them, um, you know, the Amazon marketplace was just one of, like, three or four whale customers, and it wasn't treated any differently in terms of access to. Priority or access to, you know, internal APIs or anything, and again, that was a, a, deliberate, purposeful, you know, leadership decision that was made and that was stuck to inside of Amazon, and that that that, that clearly had a big part in helping, and um, you know, make AWS what it was. So, yeah, as you say, I think if you don't have that clarity and those instincts to allow, you know, competition to develop and and you know, competitors to succeed over your own product, then I think. Yeah, then I think yeah, you're not going to succeed. And you know, I've, I've seen a lot of half-baked attempts by applications companies to brand themselves as platforms and to offer platform-y kind of features, but not to, not to actually embrace it in a genuine way. And I think that's been a, it's, a, it's a half.
0: Yeah, yeah it's a half. It's, it's also what I think sometimes what happens is that, um, you know, somebody outside will have an idea for a product capability, um, start to build on the platform, and then the application team will say, hey, no, we wanted to do that. Yeah, right. And no,
2: that's, yeah, that's, that's what Twitter used to do uh, to people uh, when they were kind of tinkering with their platform business. And you're absolutely right. Enterprise uh, software vendors think are the, some of the prime offenders there. They consider their potential market to be you know everything, <laughs> and, and therefore reserve the right to do anything at any time, which is a difficult space to innovate into. If, if somebody with a lot more capital than you can turn around and you know copy or, or crush your good idea uh, as soon as it shows any signs getting traction and Again, that's just, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a DNA thing where you're willing to allow competition to flourish up to it, including potentially allowing an external you know, uh, entity to be better than a product that you yourself already make and, and to sort of recognize that and, for example, shut down your internal product and favor the external one because that's better for the ecosystem. But they're the kind of decisions that um, you know, culturally or genetically you'll either make or not make. And like I said, I think it's, it's, it's hard to be an app company
0: and a platform company. for Sure. So, you know, moving a bit more inward, um, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about about, about architecture and and uh, and the role of of architects. And I'll tell you where where, where this question is coming from. Um, you know, when I started in HR technology in the '90s, um, we spent a lot of time thinking about data models. You know, um, and there was a lot of thought and 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 design in a waterfall architecture, you know, waterfall uh, engineering practice on the, um, on the, on the data model, you know, and, and, you know, how, for instance, in HR, you know, how does the employee object work with the person object? How does the person object work with the, with the, you know, with the cost center object and the position object and so on? And, and, and these models were, were sometimes flawed, uh, but they were well thought out. um, And they were, there were a lot of intellect went into the, the the object model before before coding started, and what I see happening today with a lot of a lot of startups in HR tech is you know they just start building stuff and it's really cool and it's really innovative and it's really exciting, um, but then you know a couple of weeks or months later they hit um, uh, an architectural roadmap because they've not actually thought through the the um, uh, the object model of how to actually. You know how this thing's all going to fit together, and so there's got to be some middle ground somewhere uh, about about architecture when it comes to things that have a complex data model like finance and HR and supply chain, supply chain, and and so on. Um, if you're a small startup uh, uh, building an application that is relatively complicated, what point in time do you start? You know, worrying about about um, you know, architectural questions, either at a functional architecture like I've been talking about, or at a, you know, or at a, 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 a technical, uh, at a technical architecture. Give, give me some sense of how you've have you've seen that change, and, 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 and some thoughts on architecture.
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I think um, so like to me, like in a in a software company, the architects are the most important people. It's not everyone's important sales, but but like to me, the the thing that really makes These companies work is that people making the difficult and strategic technical decisions about the product, about how it's built, about you know and how it's designed, how it's built, how it's operated, and where it's going. So, you know, I know that you know sort of personally. I always depended heavily on you know the input of like a small number of like highly talented architects whose judgment I trusted. And I kind of over time I was thinking, what is it? What is the skill set? Like, what are these people actually doing? And you know, these would be individual contributors um, and even like when I was running like large, like 1500 person organizations, I still had, you know, two, three, sometimes four individual contributors reporting directly to me, just because, and they were, they were typically architects, just because I valued so highly their um, technical take on things. And, you know, trying to define the role and um, it's kind of everything and nothing, but the, the best I could come up with was that what I used to look for from architects was the ability to synthesize, a very deep knowledge of where the company is at today in terms of its technology, with a good understanding of where the business and the company needs to go, and then synthesizing that into a set of strategic technical decisions and directions, uh, obviously informed by an understanding of the technical market and possibilities and so forth. So that was what they were doing. They were synthesizing you know, where you were at this time with where you wanted to get to, and then having a point of view on how the product, you know, technically would need to evolve to get there. So I think that's what architects were doing. And then they'd have to have that point of view they have to be able to communicate it. So often, you know, some of these decisions, like we're going to go Amazon, not Microsoft. We're going to use this database, not that. We're going to do this data model, not that data model. We're going to deploy like hourly, not monthly. These kinds of decisions often need, um, you know, leadership to make happen in the organization. So, you know, these people, architects typically then have to command the res- respect to the technical staff, and have often come up through the ranks, have lived, lived the dream, have made the systems work, and so on. Um, and again, you can architect at different levels, and as companies and, and stacks get bigger, you can have you know, subsystem level architects who own the database piece, or the transaction processing piece, or the reporting piece, but then you have people who have a higher level perspective who are looking at how all well the pieces fit together. Um, you know, and for example, you know, as you start looking at acquiring or being acquired, like an important question certainly for the acquiring is you know, how do we fit these things together? How does the integration happen? Um, and, you know, that's the kind of question that I would just kick over to an architect. It sounds glib, but you would say, like, look at our company and knowing everything we have and what we're doing and where we're going and looking at this company who you'd never heard of a month ago, but now you've you know, spent a week looking at their source code and talking to all their technical people, like, tell me in 10 minutes, like, can this work and how will it work? And, you know it's the kind of question that an architect a good architect will, will will be able to answer for you and you know again to me that was that was that was invaluable um, so i think there's some there's there's some of the characteristics um, maybe a little high level but that's that's really what I look for in, in kind of
0: architects yeah the thing, thing that used to keep me awake was dependencies you know? um, yeah. and you know knowing that you know when products get get bigger um you know once you can put all the engineers in a room and they talk to each other then you know, dependencies are then easy to manage right you know hey you need to build this before i build that but you know when you start getting up to say you start getting a point where you've got maybe like 100 engineers you know even 50 engineers you start to have dependencies like feature a needs to be built before feature b and um and we have a customer customer depending on you know we need a customer depending on feature b and engineer building feature a doesn't know about the dependency of of customer of the customer, so feature A slips, and that then means that feature B slips, and that means that you miss you miss the you know you miss the customer you miss the customer deliverable. So you know I the the one of the most important for people for me as a product manager was the was the the we we would rotate the senior architects through the dependency management process it was, it was a shit job, right? Um, but we put a senior architect on on managing dependencies and and so for a couple of releases they would be they'd be tracking every single custom commit and then trace them through to all the you know all the dependencies so that we would know that you know what really couldn't slip in the in the you know in the backend and often it was kind of weird you know there was some weird dependency of some minor lookup table in in feature you know feature way away from from the thing you're trying to deliver, and if you didn't do that change, then the UI wouldn't work, and you couldn't deliver it. And, and they would know all these things and be able to really triage and prioritize all these um, all these dependencies. Is a really big part of the uh, you know big part of that exercise. Um,
2: yeah, and I think just on that point, I think of course then what I what I would want from a really good architect would maybe do that for a while and then come back and say you know answer questions like why do we have depend why do, why did we have these dependencies at all. Why do we have them? How can we minimize them? How can we eradicate them? Here's three ways we can do that. We can organize differently. We can use this different technology. We can break the product up in a different way than it's currently broken up. And so it's somebody who's not just kind of, you know, not just, not just kind of pouring oil in troubled waters, but is actually thinking strategically about um, why things are inefficient or problematic or not working or, or dependent or slow or, you know, it's, it, it can, some of the insights can be quite surprising from from people who are really good at this because they can they can come up with solutions you hadn't even imagined to problems that you really didn't know you had. <laughs> um, and that's 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 kind of the alchemy of, of software it's, it's as a production process. It's, it's amenable to those kinds of radical insights that can you know significantly change you know your rate of productivity or your rate of quality or your know, rate of, of output or whatever um, quickly and again. That's 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 a uniquely software thing, and the architects are the they are the alchemists uh, you know, to me in that in, in that sort of situation.
0: Yeah, I, I was often at war with our architects, but but uh, they were always the most interesting people to have lunch with. Yeah. sometimes had the most weirdest of hobbies as well. But anyway, that's a that's another story. But the communication stuff, because again,
2: like not all sort of developers or engineers are necessarily are good at or relish communication, but often. Again, as I said, I think you know in the role of architecture, you you're not just, you have to more than have good ideas. You have to be able to sort of sell them, um, especially to the technical staff, and including often to a sceptical management tier who maybe will be a lot less qualified than you are in, in, in the technology you're talking about. So I think you know, a sort of highly developed uh, communication sensibility is also um,
0: a sort of a, a, a big, not a requisite, but a, a, a bonus for a, for a highly skilled architect. Yeah. And and from the perspective of a product manager, I think it's 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 really important that you 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 have an architect that you can talk to, um, uh, So you'll be making decisions often about features, and and you'll be making um, you know vague vague thoughts about what's this going to cost, or well, how long is this going to take, and and um, the individual engineer that you're dealing with may often be. be Far less capable, even though they're in the details of scoping it out, than at a high level, than the architect will. You know. right. uh, best the architect will understand, will have a grasp of the of the broader, you know, of the broader dependencies and of the of the of the broader architectural requirements. So it's always good to always good to be friends with a friend with a friends with an architect or two. Yes, yeah, so, totally. Yeah. So um, um perhaps perhaps moving on to talk about about. You know, you've been in the situation where where you know you've done you've been acquired. Um so Cape Clear was some time ago, but Cape Clear was, was acquired by 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 Workday. So you've been through you've been through that cycle. Um you also um Workday tends not to talk about this very much, you know, or at least historically hasn't talked talked about uh, its its acquisitions, but but you know, over the years Workday itself has made has made Multiple, you know, multiple acquisitions. Um, uh, what's your advice for for um, you know for startups or scale ups when when either they are courting or they're being courted by the bigger the bigger bigger enterprise vendors? What what do you, you know? What have you seen startups do do wrong when they you know when they start talking to 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 uh, the bigger vendors about the possibility of being of 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 a strategic strategic acquisition? Where do they go? Where do they go wrong? And, and, and how, what can they do to avoid that?
2: Yeah, again, I'm not talking about any, anything workday specific here, but certainly in general based on what I saw there and what, I'm, what I've seen and I'm seeing elsewhere. And you know, to me, just I think the most important thing is that in a good transaction, companies are, are bought, not sold. And um, so, you know, where, where startups are sort of under duress or in distress and, you know, have, have are kind of out sort of shopping themselves, that, that's rarely, you know, a good situation. Now, too, you don't really control that you're in that situation if, if things aren't working out. But you know, in terms of a good outcome, you know, companies are, are bought. So, you know, where the, the initiation of the approach comes from the acquirer and their strategic or market presence or whatever reasons, they've decided they need an asset in this space and
4: mm-hmm.
2: they've come upon you and now, now they've come calling. Um, I think that's, uh, that, that's a good situation to be in. Uh, but I think at that point, you need to be clear if you know if you're interested, because um, it can be super time wasting uh, for a company to sort of engage in these dances and be a little ambivalent themselves about what they actually want. So, um, you know, the best situations I've seen are where founders, when approached, are clear that they will or won't sell, and if they will sell, they're pretty clear on what will what will, what will interest them, in, you know, in terms of a deal and a structure and so forth. So. I think having thought a little bit about that for where your company is at at each stage, like, you know, are we looking to sell actively? Okay, that's one thing. Or if an approach comes in, what are the, what are the criteria you would use to evaluate it? Are there some, certain companies we would never, you know, we just don't like them, we, we would never accept an offer from them? Are there other companies we would be able to offer from? And in both of those cases, like what are the financial structures that, that would potentially make us interested? So I think that's, that's probably the first observation. The second thing is that, um, you know most deals don't happen, even when companies are talking. So um, like there's a lot of talk going on all the time. You know between bigger and smaller companies, and, and most deals don't happen. And I think I've seen first-time founders and, and relatively inexperienced founders be a little surprised. They think that when they're talking to the company, this deal is likely to happen, and they kind of misinterpret the the cooings of the corp dev person as being you know as good as as good as a signed deal, and it's not. So you know avoiding distraction. Um, is kind of super important and um, because you know as a CEO or as a founder you've got to assume the deal isn't going to happen and you know even if you're moving along down the process you, know, you want to minimize distraction for yourself and the team and don't get people's hopes up because you know these things often usually don't happen and it, it can be distracting and disappointing if the company's started to sort of act as if as if this is this is kind of a done deal and um, so i think yeah don't be distracted know your value and um, don't be afraid to negotiate hard i mean and um, you know, I think it's it's easy to look at like the industry in the multiples, and and you know, be I think be demanding about what you get and how it's structured, and um, and then if you are engaged in one of these processes and you're serious about it, and it looks like it might happen. Treat it like a sales process, like don't be casual about it, because um, you know all sales processes are challenging and they can fall apart at any time for any reason, and you know an acquisition process is no different. And you know one thing that did surprise me a lot and still does is seeing you know, founders be quite casual about an acquisition process, you know, so even when they're embarked on it and knowing that it's time consuming, they can be kind of sloppy about it. They're taking days or, you know, to get back on, on queries from bankers or from the acquirer. So I think a real focus on getting a deal done once you're embarked on it and um, makes it makes it a lot likelier to happen. And I think also, um, maybe finally, and um, sort of building relationships early within the company and thinking about how the integration is going to work. Um, first, deal, I need to make the deal more likely because you have built relationships uh, among a cadre of people who are likely to end up, you know, making a decision to proceed in the in the end. So I think that's, that's helpful. And secondly, if the deal does happen, it means you've kind of built relationships and you have some sense of what happens on day one after kind of the, the champagne has gone flat and, and warm and, uh, you know, kind of you're, you're back in the office on, on the Monday morning, like what happens next? So I think, um, you know, having, um, relationships built and having a realistic expectation of, of the next steps after the acquisition is, is helpful and um, you know the more successful integrations I've seen have had,
0: had that characteristic. So um, this is the SAS Power product breakfast and it is recorded in front of a live studio audience. Dave, Dave tells me I have to say that, so I've said it now. Um, Dave, any questions from your side?
1: No, uh, I've just been tweeting a few uh, of David's soundbites. I, I love the cooings of a corp dev person are not the same as this ideal. deal. That was uh, one of the quotes. Of
0: I, that, I, did, the I did warn of you. Well. I did warn you. He's got this like poetic um, thing. Like most all Irish people, he's got some distant relationship to, 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 to uh, um, William Butler Yeats or something somewhere in his family tree. <laughs> That's an urban yep. of course.
1: Yep. Hey, we yep. got a hand raiser, uh, Thomas. I'm going to bring him up.
0: Cool, great. So, Leon. Hello, Hello Leon. Hello.
1: Hello.
5: Thank you. Listen, I, um, this is absolutely awesome content, and I, I can't believe there are so few people here. This is going to be like, um, you know, the famous Sex Pistols gig in Manchester, Free Trade Hall in 77, where everyone said they were there, and, and, and as many people <laughs> who said they were there, it would have been millions. But anyway, <laughs> David, just, we'll take that. We'll take that. Yes. I've, I've, got a, I've got a question for you, sir. Um, I... I until just a few moments ago believed that I had spent significant portion of my career at companies that had platforms and, and, and the way you articulated it, which I, which I, I, I totally get, Um, you know, AWS is a platform company and, you know, um, some of these app companies that have platform capabilities really aren't, but, you know, going down to another level and if you, if you're trying to, Decide your product strategy as a software vendor. And and I'm just like imagining there's this kind of, you know, gradient. And on the right side, I've got AWS, which is absolutely a platform company. And over on the left side, I've got maybe someone like, I don't know, like Intercom or someone who's like clearly an app company. But if I'm one of these people in the middle and, and you mentioned a couple of them by name, they're building... Capabilities that they would describe as platform capabilities. And and it seems that the enterprise customers that they have need those capabilities. Like they don't just need another feature and they probably need something more than just a checkbox. They need some kind of um, declarative or code based way to put those things together. Um, how in this context should they be thinking about a platform or or is part of your message like, that's the kryptonite that leads to too much complexity and you should be really doing everything you can to avoid getting sucked into that platform mire. Because like a lot of the companies I work with, you know, w- one of the things we talk excitedly about is we're moving into enterprise and we need to start building enterprise capabilities, which includes a lot of stuff that we, you know, possibly self-deceivingly call platform capabilities. I- I- hopefully that question- yeah, makes yeah, no, that, yeah,
2: that makes sense. I think it's, it's exactly right. I think if you're anywhere in the middle of that sort of curve, then you just described, and um, you face this conundrum, like because it's clear if you're Amazon, what you're doing, it's clear if you're at the other end, and um, you, you said intercom, yeah, it's, it's clear that you're an app company and that's what you're doing. But if you're in the middle, you end up having these platformy things and you're a little conflicted about what they are and you know, who's supposed to use them and whether they're free or you're charging for them and all that all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think that that is a conundrum. I think, you know, I, I think that sometimes there's a, people conflate enterprise with complexity and actually, you know, enterprises would like to run simple software if they could, but for various reasons, some good, some bad, they end up, you know, building these ridiculously complicated and sort of um, convoluted systems. So I think, you know, enterprise doesn't have to be complex. And I think as it relates to um, some of the things you talked about, like a- APIs and, and programmability and so on, and, and you know, code-based environments and, um, you know, it's, the the key principle for them, I think for an app company anyway, is that those things, whatever you can do around those things has to be easily upgradable and testable because, um, you know, the, the, the underlying app is going to get upgraded frequently in a SaaS model. And, you know, insofar as, you know, third parties, including customers have built, you know, extensions or customizations around that app, they have to be upgrade safe. So I think that's that's kind of the the first principle of you know platformy capabilities, but like I said, I think most companies just don't, in my view, don't think clearly strategically about where they are on that curve, and as a business and as a as a as a as a, as a kind of financial revenue generating entity, they don't think about it in, in those terms, and that just leads them to kind of inconsistent behaviors. So they'll build platformy things, you know, but then try to charge for them. They'll try and tax the ecosystem when interesting things come along. They'll Compete with um, interesting things that emerge out of the ecosystem. Uh, they won't offer, you know, wide use of the tools to people who are qualified to use them. So, I think that most most companies in the middle of those curves haven't thought this through clearly and haven't got a clear position on it. And then mm-hmm. their strategy ends up being confusing to their customers, their partners, and their ecosystem. And, and that ends up, you know, materializing as a, an ecosystem mm-hmm. that is underdeveloped relative to what it could have been.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do think.
2: Um, and frankly, this reflects um, what I'm doing at the moment and some of the companies I'm working with and investing. in. I do think that companies who, who think more clearly about this and who have a more you know, platform oriented mindset from the get-go in terms of solving enterprise problems have a good opportunity to disrupt the way a lot of this is done today in enterprises. So, um,
5: so you, you, you said a very interesting thing there about thinking clearly. And, and in your opinion, should it be... Like, as long as you're thinking clearly and have a well-articulated point of view, understanding, you know, both understanding the trade-offs, mm-hmm. is that the key? Or are there some specific points of view that you would say, you know, 90% of app companies should think about platform in this way? And, you know, unless there's a specific reason that you
2: shouldn't. No, I think it's the former. I think it's. I think you need to think clearly about what you want to be and why, given, you know, what you make, your industry, your target market, your your your, your DNA as to how you think about these things. I think the key thing is clear thinking. Um, And and mostly, if I go to an app company and ask them five or 10 questions along the lines that we've been talking about here, they'll give me a series of inconsistent, muddy, you know, answers that don't really make sense taken together. Whereas I'm surprised when I occasionally go in somewhere and I'll, I'll get clear answers. You know, to me, there isn't a right or wrong because you're essentially choosing to position yourself deliberately somewhere on this spectrum of, I'm just an app that people can use as it is, or I'm a platform which can be extended and repurposed in all yeah. these various ways. And
0: I thought it wasn't. The... Maybe I'll add one. I'll maybe one piece of advice to people from outside who are trying to build on a platform of one of the bigger vendors. Right, never be the first. Right. If awesome. if if a if a big vendor announces a platform, only build on it when their own engineers are building on it. Right. So hey,
1: fair enough, Thomas. I'm keeping an eye on the time, and I just brought Vitaly up. Uh, so, Vitaly, please weigh in.
0: Hey, Vitelli, yeah, great. Uh, Vitelli is our is our is our top guest. He's he's on every week. He's winning the he's winning the he's one of our most consistent visitors. So Vitaly, welcome. Your question, sir. Yeah, uh, thank you,
4: Thomas. And I think the the time just 8 a.m. works beautifully for me. So thanks for having at least one show. Uh, that can work, uh, David. Uh, thank you for you know all the content uh, that you shared with us. Um, it, it was a great uh, talk. So my question is more about like the maybe kind of a, a little bit of redefinition uh, of a platform in kind of this day and age, where um, usually we used to think about the platforms uh, is you know, something that runs code, or let's say something similar to code, but then you kind of provided the Bill Gates definition, which is, you know, something that uh, allows the ecosystem um, kind of generate more more value than the company that provides it. And in that regard, uh, I'm wondering, uh, what is your kind of look on companies that Let's put it kind of taking different spin, and I'm talking primarily on the API companies like Stripe and Twilio and Plaid, and you know there's definitely more similar to that, that are again not exactly platforms in the classical sense, but they do um, enable um, a wide array of um, use cases for the people who use them.
2: Yeah, it's a good. Good question, um, and it's probably it's pretty illegal um, to to mention another analyst in front of uh, Thomas and maybe Dave, but I, I will anyway. So I think Ben Thompson, who writes strategy, is quite an interesting uh, thinker on some of these topics, and he would distinguish between a platform, which is mostly what we've talked about, and then an aggregator, which is um, a company that you know provides technology that essentially you know owns demand in a given area. So it's you know sort of. Um, Google own demand and search because everyone searches there, so they they then can you know uh, rent that demand out to suppliers who are trying to advertise to those people. So I think there is a, we're kind of out of time to tease out this distinction, but I think um, yeah, there's a distinction between the platform business where you're directly using the thing they have, and then an aggregator who has some technology, but it more about cornering really cornering a, um, a demand in a marketplace, and then. Sort of offering that to people who want to supply things to 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 demand, and um, so yeah, I think as I say, we we probably have time to dig into it today, but I think this, that that is an important distinction you draw, yeah. Thank you. This is great.
0: So we are we are at the top of the hour. I had a whole lot of questions, David, about his golf experience. Actually, let's finish with that, David. Tell us about your pro am experience just as a as a wrap up for for today's session. I can keep, it's kind of
2: embarrassing. I, I got roped into a golf tournament, and like I'm terrible, but uh, sort of it was a, a, a sponsored tournament, and I got to play with a couple of pros. And uh,
0: it, so, who did you play with?
2: Um, I played with John Ram, who's a Spanish golfer. Um so he was kind of my most uh, most famous partner over the course of the of the of the weekend. But he was pretty good, actually. <laughs> <laughs> He was surprisingly unwilling to engage in in conversation about Basque separatism, which I was hoping to hoping to discuss with him. And he wanted to stick mostly to the, uh, mostly to the stick, not to the knitting, but to the golf.
0: So, right. yeah, fun guy. Well, well, David, we we're going to have to have you back on the show. I think um, uh, if everyone agrees, let's have a little clap clap for that. But I would love to have you. I'd love you to to have you uh, back on, Dave. Do you want to close the show?
1: Sure. Thanks very much. Hey, David, thank you. What what a great session that was! Thanks to everybody who joined. We will see you next week, where we have Brett Queener, uh, former Salesforce alum, current venture capitalist, uh, and former Siebel executive. And uh, these we uh, Thomas has been recording these, and we are releasing this as a podcast. Yeah, it should so, be a
0: podcast. Will be out in the next, um, at least by the weekend, if not uh, if not tomorrow. So. Um, uh, do do keep an eye out for the podcast and do tell everyone about our show and uh look forward to seeing you next week. And our thanks very, very much uh, uh, David for coming on the show and Dave as always great host, great co host and see you guys next week. Thanks yeah, care. thank
1: you all. Leon I quoted the session with this dude. You were at the Sex Pistols concert. Remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Take care.
0: Thank you. See you.